It's Friday, June 18th. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. Today, we're running part two of my interview with Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. The state's junior senator graduated from Harvard University and the Harvard Law School. He was deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan as a soldier in the United States Army. First elected to the Senate in 2014, he was re-elected in 2020 by a two-to-one margin. In the conversation I had with him this week, we discussed the events of January 6th, the Biden administration's agenda, and the sleeper issue of next year's midterm elections. Hello, Senator Cotton, and welcome to the News Items Podcast. Thank you, John. Hello to you. It's great to be on with you. Given our time here, I wanted to get into an oral history of January 6, 2021. I'm just interested to know that was obviously the day that President Biden's election was certified. I assume that you were on Capitol Hill around lunchtime. Tell us what the rest of the day was like for you. Yeah, I was up there and I, I knew obviously that there was going to be a large uh, rally at the Ellipse uh, a couple of miles down the mall from the Capitol. And in fact, I planned my early morning just to view it. I frequently run on the National Mall when Congress is in session. So that morning, I started over in Arlington and ran by the Iwo Jima Memorial and around the edge of Arlington National Cemetery and across the Memorial Bridge. And some of the rally goers were already walking from Arlington, having parked over there and taking the same path I did. And by the time I reached the Washington Monument, the line already reached around to the southern end of the Washington Monument. So there was a large crowd already gathered by 6.30. And I finished my run at the Capitol and nothing significant was happening throughout that morning. If you recall, uh, in early January, when the pandemic had reached its peak in this country, so Congress was still largely closed. I only had one personal aide working uh, with me in the Capitol that day. I think that was pretty common among most senators and congressmen. And I worked at my desk until the time that the joint session started. Anytime we have a joint session, we start in the Senate. Uh, I think that was probably around noon or maybe 1230. And then the Senate walks, you know, the couple hundred yards, the middle of the Capitol, to the House chamber. That proceeded very quickly. They opened the elector envelopes from the states in alphabetical order. Arizona was the first one to come that faced objections. Objections were made probably within the first 20 minutes, 30 minutes or so. And then the joint session recessed until we went back to the Senate. As is usually the case with senators and congressmen, it takes a lot longer than it should have. (laughs) So we milled about the Senate floor for 15 or 20 minutes while all the other senators arrived and senators prepared to make their speeches. Uh, The first I had heard that there was any protesters outside the Capitol or inside the Capitol complex was from Senator Romney, who at the time sat behind me and a few desks down. He was telling everyone that the protesters were in the building. They were in the building. And that we should all look at our phones. And I I looked at my phone. I didn't have anything on there. I guess I wasn't signed up for the right listserv. (laughs) And I asked Joni Ernst, who was seated next to me, if she 
had anything. And she showed me her phone. It was a, a notice from the Capitol Police that protesters had entered the Ford building. And if you're familiar with the Capitol complex, the Ford building is on the far southern side uh, of the House side of the Capitol. The Senate chamber is on the northern side of the Capitol. So for us, that's like the other side of the universe. Right, right. And again, I, I didn't think much of it. It's not uncommon to have protesters in the Capitol office buildings. I did, however, decided it would be prudent to tell my personal aide to get the Leatherman tool from my office and bring it to me. A Leatherman tool, for those who don't know, is a handy little multifunction tool that has pliers and screwdrivers and can openers and knife blades on it. Uh, very popular among soldiers in the Army. I had one back in the day. And as luck would have had it, my boys, uh, six and four, who were with me three days earlier on January 3rd at the new swearing-in, had discovered this Leatherman that someone had given me recently. And my staff didn't tell me about it. It was very nice. It had my name engraved and my former Army units on it. So he brought it over to me just before they closed the Senate chambers. So I, I might have been the only senator who was armed, if only with the Leatherman. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, that wasn't necessary. From that point forward, you've probably seen on TV what happened. The Secret Service came into the chamber and uh, took Mike Pence out, which meant Chuck Grassley, president pro tem of the Senate at the time, had to be hurried into the chair on the dais to gavel the Senate out of session and into recess. And then at that point, the Capitol Police in charge of the Senate chamber were in a scramble to secure the five entry doors to the Senate chamber, and then especially the entry doors to the gallery above us. And that took some time for them to get secure, especially the gallery doors. But once they had those secure, we really didn't know what was going on in the hallways outside. And I, I never personally saw any of the persons who had breached the Capitol complex or in the halls of the Capitol. I'm not sure any senator saw them either. It wasn't like some of the images you've seen from the House chamber right. um, where protesters came close to the door or were trying to break through the doors. I didn't personally have that experience in the Senate chamber, and I don't think uh, other senators did either. So that's what we experienced in the Senate chamber for probably 30 or 45 minutes until the Capitol Police told us that we would be moving to another secure location in the Capitol complex. So you go to the secure location and you're there presumably with your colleagues. What did you do then? Did you watch TV or? So they, they moved us out down a set of stairs and another set of stairs into the basement tunnels. Suffice to say that some senators don't move all that fast <laughs> at their age and fitness level. So that was a bit of a trying exercise, but I uh, highly commend all the Capitol Police who were around the Senate chamber and escorting us to the secure location that afternoon. They had established an effective perimeter to keep any potential riders away from our route of evacuation to the secure location. And again, like I said, I, I never saw any of these riders firsthand, and I don't think any other senators did either. Once we got into the secure location, you know, they handed out water. They told us what was going on. They spoke about another potential evacuation plan, which we did not undertake. But it was about probably an hour and a half, John, before they rolled in televisions on carts so we could watch on TV what was happening in real time. There had been some senators who would pull up video on social media or news sites on their phone to give a sense of the imagery that other Americans were seeing, whether outside the Capitol or inside the Capitol halls. But again, we were largely in the dark for that first hour and a half or two hours 
um, about exactly what was happening outside of first the Senate chamber and the secure location to which we relocated. And that was not uncommon either. I, I talked to my personal aide who was in our offices in the Russell Senate office building. And he said, likewise, that if it hadn't been for the television that he was watching, he would not have known anything was amiss in the Capitol complex. And so presumably at some point later, you get the all clear. What what did you do? We were in that secure location for probably about six or seven hours. They later brought in food uh, for the dinner meal. There was at first some chaotic moments about exactly what was happening. The Capitol Police leadership and the Sergeant of Arms leadership, I would say, did not cover themselves in glory in that day. Mm-hmm. There's been Senate committee reports to that effect. They let down their frontline officers very badly, but also they didn't really know what was happening at the time. But it became pretty quickly apparent that the situation was either under control in the Capitol or quickly coming under control. The Senate leadership had been separated further from us, taken presumably to an even more secure location. And I, and I, I texted with Senator McConnell and just said that I, I thought that we should not leave our secure location, that we should hold what we got and wait until the Senate was secure and the House chamber was secure and proceed with the business of the day. And he wrote me back that he very much agreed with that. And that was his plan. And that is ultimately what happened. I think maybe around seven or eight o'clock at night, we got the all clear. Uh, we all walked back to the Senate chamber. The debate continued. If you recall, some debate had occurred before we were forced to recess because of the breach of the Capitol. But the debate continued on the Arizona electors. We had the vote. Uh, the vote was certified. We returned to the Senate chamber, ran through all the other states in alphabetical order, and then I believe the objection, the next and final objection was to Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So we recessed again late at night. By this point, it's probably 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. Um, we had the debate in the Senate chamber over the Pennsylvania electors. And then we voted. And at that point, knowing no more objections were coming, most senators left for the evening. That was probably well after midnight. So the, the joint session reconvened after, again, some usual, but in my opinion, regrettable delays in these things <laughs> right. and uh, ran through all the states in alphabetical order after Pennsylvania until they certified all 50 and certified the Electoral College count very early in the morning on January 7th. So did you then just go home or did you spend the night in your office? No, at that point, the situation was under control. The army had rapidly erected anti-riot fencing, which should have been up earlier in the day, given the threats reporting coming in and uh, the streets were clear and we were told that it was safe to travel. So my personal aid and I left for the evening. That's amazing. It's, it's just one of the things that just amazes me is that, you know, like that people were hailing Ubers at 1230 or one o'clock in the morning. Well, I think most people expected to be done probably around dinner time. Right. Again, this is the kind of thing that could be done very rapidly. If there are no objections, as there were in, say, 2016, right. and no votes, it can be done in half an hour or less. Even with two objections, if senators and congressmen would show a sense of urgency and get back to their chambers and get in their seats and do their job, <laughs> as opposed to milling about and glad-handing and BSing, uh, then work would get done a lot faster. But again, that's not something that's unique to January 6th. That happens every day in the Congress, (laughs) to my chagrin. (laughs) All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more of my interview with Senator Cotton. 
Welcome back to News Items. I want to, uh, just because it would be probably irresponsible not to, um, my theory about Joe Biden is that he was entirely elected because he was not Trump. And so the day that he took the oath of office, he essentially had fulfilled his mandate. And so following that, you would think that a president without a mandate, other than to beat the guy who was in office, would step gingerly forward into the political future and not propose, for instance, a $6 trillion budget. What is your sense of the Biden administration's grandiosity, I guess? I I don't know quite what the word is, but does this have any chance of passage? Is it going to work? Perhaps I'd modify that to say delusional grandiosity. (laughs) Delusional grandiosity. Yeah, if you recall, Joe Biden's central campaign theme was that he was going to restore the soul of America. There you go. As if somehow the very fact of having a Republican in the White House was degrading our soul. But that meant he did not have a well-developed concrete agenda on which he had campaigned. That's somewhat unusual for a president. Most presidents come into office and do have some kind of concrete legislative agenda they want to pursue. I think as the Democrats used the coronavirus last year in an opportunistic fashion to campaign against President Trump. They also used it early this year to try to muscle through their radical agenda. They did pass a totally unnecessary $2 trillion spending bill in March, even as we could all see the coronavirus pandemic was rapidly coming under control because of the record-breaking time in which we developed highly effective vaccines. That bill was fairly easy for the Democrats to pass, in part because it had been developed and sold at a time when the coronavirus pandemic was still raging across the country in early and mid-January, but in part because it didn't raise taxes and it distributed money directly to voters and Democratic constituencies in a way that was kind of evenly divided across the country. Uh, So that's something that's easy for Democratic politicians to vote for. Unfortunately, it's had deleterious effects. Obviously, if you look at hiring, I think it's a result of Uncle Sam's unemployment bonus, which again was totally unnecessary as vaccines were bringing the coronavirus under control or the bailout to state governments who are now so awash in money, they don't even know how to spend it. But all the other bills they propose are going to be much harder and less popular because they want to raise taxes and they want to spend money in ways that don't really benefit Democratic constituencies equally. I mean, what does a Democratic senator from Arizona or Nevada care about $80 billion in Amtrak spending, for instance? But I think the Democrats came into office with FDR and LBJ type ambitions without accepting the fact that they didn't have FDR and LBJ majorities. Right, right. And the reason they're struggling to pass those tax and spending bills, just like they are going to struggle to pass their radical election bill, which would nationalize our election procedures, or to make Washington, D.C. a state, or to pack our court system, is because they don't have 75 senators the way FDR did. They don't even have 60 senators the way Barack Obama did. They have 50 senators. And that's just the political reality. And as you say, you would think that it would suggest that the president steps gingerly and try to find common ground with the Republicans. And they may be increasingly moving in that direction as they realize that their issue is not getting 60 votes in the Senate for certain 
measures, their issue is getting 50 votes in the first place because they can't get all their Democrats on board. Right, right. Yeah, I, a friend of mine is close to the Biden administration, and he was asking me what I thought you know they would do. And I said, I just assume that they will do everything they can to shore up Social Security and Medicare and make the Republicans vote against it. And uh, he said, well, as if. Uh, <laughs> no, and they've done the opposite, too. I mean, so, some of this some of the measures in the first bill they passed in March and they proposed in the future bills have not gotten a lot of attention. But trust me, it will get plenty of attention in 2022 on the campaign trail. Joe Biden, the Democrats essentially undid the welfare reform of 1996. So checks are now going to households, not only with no breadwinner, with no income earner, but with no one even seeking a job or getting job training or going to school. That is massively unpopular with working Americans, and the Democrats are going to play a political price for it. Yeah, my friend Mickey Kaus has written uh, very persuasively on that subject. He was a huge uh, backer of the Clinton-Gingrich welfare reform package that passed in the mid-90s, and he'd been hard, obviously, in the last, if you know Mickey's work, he's been pretty monotone on immigration, but he's flipped off immigration and on to uh, into the repeal, essentially, of welfare reform. I think it's going to be a huge issue, don't you? I do. And I can tell you that Republican senators across the ideological spectrum are astonished that the Democrats think that it's popular just to give checks out to families with no one even seeking a job or getting job training. That was the heart of the 1996 welfare reform. And it will be a centerpiece uh, of Republican campaigns next year. But of course, we want to give a helping hand and a hand up to people who have fallen on their luck, lost their job, have a sick kid. But people need to work, and especially in an economy when we have so many job openings and when employers are struggling to find workers, in part because of Uncle Sam's unemployment bonus, we shouldn't be giving even more payments to allow people not to work. But a lot of Democrats just think that's what modern social policy should promote, that everyone should have a universal basic income. And if you don't want to work and if you want to discover your artistic abilities, your aesthetic sensibilities, as Nancy Pelosi once said, then that's what you should be allowed to do. Thanks to your Uncle Sam. <laughs> We're getting to the end here, but I wanted to ask you one question. Have you uh, have you talked to President Trump? How is he doing? We have talked on several occasions since January 20th, and he seems to be doing well in good spirits. You know, we both had a, a rueful uh, chuckle recently at the media's flip-flop on the Wuhan lab leak theory. Um, <laughs> bet, one, one of many occasions uh, in which the media is now having to sing a different tune about events that happened during the Trump era. Another one recently is the Inspector General report that's conclusively stated that Lafayette Park, just north of the White House, was not cleared so Donald Trump could have a photo op, but rather so uh, a security fence could be put up to secure that park from vandals and rioters and also to protect the White House as well. There's a lot of instances like that where the media took a story and ran with it uh, without any facts whatsoever, always willing to believe the very worst about Donald Trump and the very worst about Republicans, uh, only to have egg on its face in retrospect. But he's otherwise doing all right. His golf game is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't talk about his golf game, and uh, and I don't play with him. But from what I hear from people like Lindsey Graham and Rand Paul, he's playing pretty well, as always. <laughs> okay. 
Well, Senator, thank you very much for your time. This has been great, and uh, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to speak again in the future. Thank you, John, and thanks for News Items. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was Simran Singh. And if you haven't yet, you can go back and hear part one of my interview with Senator Cotton, which aired on Tuesday. I'll be back on Monday with my co-host Rebecca Darst for a round of news analysis. We'll see you then.